I started to realize that climbing is probably 99% of the time failing, only to succeed, you know, this one time. You know, sometimes it's 100% failing and you'll never climb the route, but that's also fine, at least you tried. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Oh my gosh, you guys. Today we are sitting down for a chat with Alex Magos, and I feel like it's pretty rare for Alex to sit down and do interviews like this, so I'm super psyched for this conversation. Alex is, of course, one of the strongest climbers in the world. Three 9B plus or 515C routes under his belt, including King Capella, Perfecto Mundo, and the first ascent of bibliography. He was also the first ever climber to on-site 9A or 514D. And he's also sent, I believe, seven V15 boulders and at least one, but perhaps two V16s, depending on how the consensus goes. He's obviously crazy strong and talented, but as you'll hear in our chat, he's most certainly human and he struggles in his climbing just like the rest of us. Alex and I also chat about his view on knee pads and knee bars, so get ready for controversy, and also his passion for environmental causes. And Carrots for Power, his clothing company that started as a joke, and it's now doing some really awesome stuff around the world. This show is made possible with the support of Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Y'all, I've been using their innovative science-backed products for a year now, and I can honestly say that I have been able to train harder, perform better, and stay healthier than I have ever been able to do. So here's a perfect example. Last week, the conditions were incredible at the red. I knew I had to get out, but I was feeling super low energy. Went out anyway, and I had some Endurex and Crush by Fizzy Vantage, two of my favorite products, to kind of level up my endurance, my energy, and my focus. And boom, I flashed this legendary 11D pump fest called Return to Chris Snyder. It's like 100 feet long. It was insane. My highest flash before that was 11B. So it was like a really big jump for me. I was psyched. Try it out for yourself. Hit the link in the show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off a full-price nutrition order. You can join the ranks of Daniel Woods and Natalia Grossman and Jonathan Seacrest and so many others who are already getting the fizzy vantage. This episode is also sponsored by my friends over at Friction Labs Chalk, which I've been using for years because it is just the best. You know who else uses Friction Labs? A little up-and-comer by the name of Alex Magos, and if it is good enough for him, it's damn sure good enough for us. What's in it? Magic. But let's talk about what's not in it for a second. Fillers, rosin, and drying agents, they don't mess with that stuff, which means it lasts longer, and it's going to keep your skin healthy. Look, they're the only ones making chalk in the U.S. with the highest quality ingredients, and they love helping climbers to perform at their best. Try it risk-free and see for yourself. That is how psyched they are to help you level up. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. Lastly, I'm just so proud to say that the struggle is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. Swing on over to honoldfoundation.org and think about becoming a monthly donor like I am. It feels awesome, and you're going to be supporting incredible projects that they're doing such as solar-powered food systems and sustainable production models for families in rural Nicaragua. One thing to note here, y'all, is when I talked to Alex, it was in January, and he was coming to me from Ukraine, where he was training with his friends and his girlfriend and family and loved ones there, and it was a great, happy time. 
Of course, this is before Russia went in and invaded that sovereign nation. So we don't cover any of that in this interview, but of course, Alex has been incredibly active in trying to help the people of Ukraine and spread information about what's really happening over there. So while we don't cover it here, stay tuned with Alex's feed on Instagram, and I'm working with him on a follow-up interview to really talk about what's happening over there from his perspective. And lastly, y'all, after my chat with Alex, stick around for a couple minutes for a little recap and to learn how you can score some free stuff from the show. All right, thank you so much for your support. And now let's get ready to crib down for a conversation with Alex Magos. Alex, it's so good to see you, man. Welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, awesome to be part of it. I'm so psyched that you're here, man. So, look, one doesn't typically think of struggle and Alex Magos in the same sentence. Maybe not at first glance when we're looking at how you're sending the hardest stuff in the world and we see on YouTube and, and Instagram these incredible climbs that you're doing. I think social media very often just paints a wrong picture of a persona in general of an athlete because... You tend to post 90% of the things that you get up and the things that actually work out. And generally about 100% of the stuff that doesn't work out never makes it to social media. So I think that paints a little bit of a wrong picture. So what does struggle mean to you? I think what struggle means to me is, I mean, there are lots of routes I, I couldn't climb and I've tried, you know, they've got also nemesis routes. I think every climber does. And Struggle means also going to the gym and having training sessions when you feel absolutely awful and you're definitely not psyched to go climbing and still get your ass to the gym and do your workout. I think that's that's struggle. So what's your relationship with struggle? Do you seek it out? Do you try to minimize it? I, I wouldn't say I try to minimize struggle. The thing is, the, the bigger the struggle, the better the outcome usually. So whether that's in training or a route, I've noticed that the more you struggle with something, might be a route, might be a training session, might be a boulder, and then you actually end up succeeding on it. It just feels so much more rewarding than, you know, just rocking up to something and climbing it second try. Even though sometimes, you know, the routes you struggle on might be technically grade-wise easier than the stuff you've already done, you know, in flash or second try. But actually spending more days struggling with the move, struggling with the route, and then end up succeeding, that is, I would say, one of the better feelings of, of climbing and one of the better feelings there is. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there, there is uh, the reward tends to be greater if a project really puts up a fight. And it's interesting to hear your note there that sometimes it's not even maybe the hardest grade that you've tried to climb. It might just be a style that's different or something like that. I think especially when you come closer to your limit, it matters so much whether the route suits you or not so if you pick a route that is not your style you'll struggle loads on it and it might end up being two grades easier than other stuff you've already climbed that might suit your style but i think that's always part of the game and that's part of the beauty of climbing that different people perform differently in granite limestone in different rock types and different lengths of routes and that makes it interesting what isn't Alex Magos's style, like what would be the anti-style for you? The anti-style would be big granite slopers, loads of heel hooks and that kind of stuff. I'm not good at it. I'm not a big heel hook fan. 
probably because uh, due to a friend of mine, he looks were forbidden in training for a long time. So about a decade of my training, I never e-looked, which obviously didn't improve my e-look skills. But <laughs> I will also just never climb on slopes because my, my home area, the front mirror, is just tends to be very pockety and crimpy. So you rarely see any sloper. And obviously that's during my years of teenage years, that's, you know, the area I spent most time in. So I just can't hold slopers very well. And if you, if you have to try to pick a style in the World Cup, then it's always jumping around. I would call it modern bouldering. Now it's, I'm not very good at that. I think because years of my training was always, if you jump to something, you hold the swing and then you do the next move. But with the modern bouldering style, it's more of a, well, you jump to something, you use the momentum to do the next move straight away. And that's something, if you're not used to it, it takes time and uh, lots of practice to get used to it. Wow, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't heard that you didn't heel hook for a decade. Obviously, that's going to set you back in that type of technique. Um, but of course, it's going to make you stronger in other areas. It obviously made me strong in a specific style, but it didn't make me very strong in heel hooking. So now I'm paying for it a little bit, I, I want to say, in in some sense, because obviously, if you want to be a complete climber and if you want to, perform throughout all climbing styles that's something you need to learn especially for world cups he looks very often at save you so now i'm i'm trying to train those obviously it makes it a bit harder if you haven't done it for a long time but that's i'm getting better that's cool that's a different game well good let's talk about training let's dive into things here where have you struggled in your training alex i would say from my youth on i was always a very motivated climber i was super psyched for training and when I was around 13 years old that's when I really got psyched for climbing and that's when I started climbing two three four times a week and I got so psyched that by the age of like 20 21 maybe I started getting injuries because I was kind of overdoing it a little bit interesting yeah you know this is definitely something that I think impacts all climbers regardless of your level I mean as a weekend warrior I think a lot of us want to go into the gym and just you know, crawl out of there because we've trained so hard. So how has your perspective on training and rest changed since you were younger? Well, when I was younger, rest days pretty much didn't exist. I, I can remember climbing some years back, 28 days in a row on climbing trips in Bishop. And that obviously was not very beneficial for my skin and also not very beneficial for my body. When I was maybe 23, 24, I started getting inflammations in my fingers. I started... Um, rupturing a few pulleys and I realized that I needed to adjust my training and I kind of went away from doing you know crimping on overhanging boards seven times a week to crimping only maybe four or five times a week and then doing some antagonist training and then I went over to incorporating more rest days and also diversifying my training a little bit and training my weaknesses not always training on small crimps every week that helped a lot and for about yeah two and a half years now i'm injury free i would say i am more of a complete climber and yeah i think uh, that was a good changes i've made so training less days now for the last few years that hasn't made you weaker i would say it had a very positive impact especially because if you don't give your body any rest all the training sessions are kind of useless because get all the training sessions and the work that you put in only kind of pay off if you also give your body time to adapt to it, give your tendons time to adapt for it and actually 
build up muscles. If you constantly keep hitting your body day in, day out, then you might feel like you're doing loads, but it's actually not that effective. Yeah, even though it was hard to incorporate rest days, I think it was uh, beneficial for my climbing and training. And so what does a rest day look like for you? Typically like four hours of campus boarding on a rest day. But that's really... <laughs> that's the Alex Magos rest. <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I do like to go running. And I don't run very long or very fast, but I, I enjoy it. And I also think for an active recovery, it can be good um, if you don't overdo it. And um, stretching and yoga is something you could always do. I've yeah found yoga as another passion besides climbing for well, quite a few years now. And love doing handstands, love stretching, that kind of stuff. All right, Alex, let's talk about nutrition now. Where have you struggled in that area? I have noticed that quite a few years back when I was eating loads of meat, I was sweating loads more on my finger. So I realized, ah, if I eat loads of meat the day after, I'm sweating more on my fingertips, which is not very good for climbing. Um, so I started, if I wanted to, you know, perform well the next day um, in terms of not sweating as much. I didn't eat meat the day before. Also before competitions, for example, I avoided meat because most competitions are generally either in warm areas or in summer. So sweating less makes a huge difference. Yeah, that is really interesting. So you actually noticed a negative performance impact from eating meat. Like it was making your fingers sweat. Obviously, that's not good for rock climbers. Is that why ultimately you decided to give up meat? I, I think you're vegan now. Is that right? Yes, I am currently plant-based for a bit more than a year now. Okay, a little over a year now. So yeah, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your diet and, and, and its impact. You know, one of the things that climbers can be pretty obsessed about is protein and making sure we're getting enough and tracking it. And now that you're fully plant-based, do you feel like you're getting enough protein? I mean, if you want to max out, you probably can't eat more than 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight to get the maximum effect of muscle growth. And if you actually break it down to your body weight, 1.6 grams is not that much. So in the end, that ends up for me being, you know, maybe a little more than 100 grams. And then if I look back at what I ate, you know, five years ago, I, I probably had 200 grams of protein a day, which was double the protein. So I actually felt like I was eating too much protein back in the day. And now becoming plant-based, I actually realized that the body actually doesn't need as much protein. It can't handle as much protein and eating other other nutrients um, is, well, more, more important. So I, I feel like a lot of people are very fiber deficient and they don't even realize it. Well, what, that's interesting. So from a performance standpoint, what are the benefits of fiber? Um, I mean, it's what kind of fills you up. Very often people maybe get enough macronutrients in terms of, you know, fats, uh, carbohydrates and uh, proteins, but uh, all the micronutrients that are found in uh, vegetables and fruits, they don't get those because nobody ever actually gives them a shit about, about fiber and eating those things. And I mean, if you eat too much protein, your digestion is literally awful, like I think lots of people will, will know that. I mean, you can just try to eat, you know, 200 grams of protein a day and then see what happens the next day. Yeah, you know, there's something wrong when you're, when you're only taking a shit once a week, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so break it down for me real quick here. What does a typical day in Alex Magos' diet look like? 
I mean, a typical day would look like I love having soy yogurt with oats in the morning. And then usually the main part of my day is training. So usually during training, I don't really eat that much. So there's not, not a big lunch. My big meals are breakfasts and dinners. And during dinner, I usually make a veggie pan, try to do with different vegetables and obviously eat loads of carrots because uh, that always helps, you know, orange carrots and purple carrots and yellow, yellow carrots and red ones. That's, uh, should be part of every meal. <laughs> All right, Alex, it's time to shift gears here, talk about technique or tactics. And look, we've all seen a million YouTube videos of you just crushing the hardest roots in the world. So I'm curious to understand from you if this is an area where you've had some struggle and what it's taught you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah? I mean, social media very often is very deceiving and um, the same video will very often look very good and nobody can see the 10 days of struggling that came before that. Um, so yeah, there are loads of things I, I, I struggle with. How do you tackle a route tactically that you might need to spend more time on than a quick send? I, I think the tactics are definitely different. If I know that I can do something quickly, it doesn't take up as much headspace, you know. Obviously, I'm still going to prepare for it. And I will invest time and effort to still make sure that I climb it quickly. And that doesn't end up being like a nemesis. But when I try something that I know will require, you know, more time, more effort, then I usually, I tend to specifically trade for those things. I usually then do trips to check out the route, to check out the moves, see what it requires, see how fit I need to be to be able to climb it. And then I would I kind I kind of plan multiple trips to go to the same destination to make sure that I don't end up spending you know weeks and weeks in a row on the same on the same route just because that usually makes well the body weak also if you spend too much time on one certain thing I think you take steps back in your in your fitness yeah that's interesting so so if you're really sieging a project you're talking days weeks months maybe years you're saying you could even lose some fitness in the course of that if, if you focus too much on it. Exactly. So let's talk about lucid dreaming for a second in Bishop V15. Um, just such a stunning boulder problem. And that's one that took you some time. You worked it, you went back home, you trained, you came back. And, you know, this is on your website as well. You say style matters. So I'm wondering maybe through the lens of lucid dreaming, what does that term mean? What does style matters mean? Yeah, I think that is, for me, lucid dreaming is the definition of an amazing boulder problem. You sit down on the ground, you do four hard moves, and then a kind of a high top out, but at the end you're standing on a huge boulder, and there's not much trickery to it. It's kind of straightforward. The bottom moves, the hard four moves, very, very straightforward. It just feels like pure climbing, and that's something always intrigued me and that's something I always put a lot of value in and for me climbing something in good style usually is that I mean a friend of mine kind of took it to the extreme for example if he would um, be climbing the route and his foot would pop or he would take a swing like an uncontrolled swing he would hold the swing but just because in his eyes it didn't look good that his foot popped you know he would just jump off and let go because he didn't want to climb it that way 
What about knee pads? I'm, I'm, I'm like reticent to even bring this up because prepare ourselves for the Instagram controversy to follow. But with regards to style, um, how do you feel about using knee pads, especially if they hadn't been used on the first ascent? For me, I feel like if the first ascent of the route has been done without knee pad, then that's the style you should try to repeat it in. And you should try to repeat it this the same way. Um, I've just noticed that lots of people, they just want to take the grade, you know, but they don't want to put in enough effort. So just to clarify kind of what, what you're expressing here, it's not about using the tactic of knee bars, which um, seem to be far more common now than they were, but it's it's not that. It's it's about the pad, the knee pad, right? Like the layers of rubber that you strap to your leg. The layer of rubber, exactly. Because very often, I mean, very often I feel like there are knee bars that you can only do with a knee pad. Or you can only get the rest with a knee pad. Like if you only have your bare knees or, you know, your pants, you're not going to be able to use the same knee bar. That's, uh, Got it. But those are two different things altogether, I would say. I mean, sometimes... There is just a knee bar that you just end up not seeing and it would make it easier even without a knee pad. Then uh, it just it's just obvious the first ascender, well, either he didn't spend enough time or he chose to not use it or he just didn't see it. The grade needs to be changed. I feel sometimes it's a bit of a gray area when the first ascent was, is done without knee pad and somebody uses a knee pad. Should the grade be changed? Yes or no? That depends. I think everybody will have a different opinion on that. My opinion is that people should just try to repeat it the same way that the first Senate did. Obviously, most people don't want to do that. That's fine. And I guess then the route, in some cases, needs to be downgraded. But interestingly, with classical routes, um, I feel like people are more willing to repeat it in the style it's been put up. So I, I, I'd like to take a funny example, for example, Hubble. You know, it used to be the world's first 14C in the UK, in England. Um, yeah, I think Ben Moon put that up, right? Yeah, Ben Moon. When was it? Was it in 89? I believe it was in 89. That sounds right. And obviously back then, nobody used knee pads. And you could argue nobody used good shoes back then either. But the nature of the route is that it has like little roofs. So technically, probably if you have the right length of leg, and use two knee pads, you could probably find a sneaky way here to avoid doing the hard moves. And then it might be only, you know, 14B, so 8C. So a grade easier, or maybe two grades easier than what it is now. Should Hubble be downgraded now just because somebody found a sneaky way with a knee pad that maybe works only for him because he's got the right length of legs? Or should it not be downgraded? Hmm. And that's, I feel like that's um, something the climbing world doesn't have an answer to. For now, that's a gray area and it always comes down to the climber who repeats it with or without an e-pad, you know, with a new beta that he found, with the old beta used. It just comes down to him being honest. Yeah, thank you for bringing that perspective. I, I think it's, um, you know, if there's one guarantee, everyone's going to have a strong opinion on this thing and it may not get settled for a little bit. But I mean, it's so fascinating to talk about and so useless too. And I think that's, that's kind of the beauty of it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, something to keep us busy when we're not training our fingers. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Alex, let's dive into the mental aspect of climbing here. And in rewatching Rotpunkt, that, that beautiful film that you did with Ken Etzel, one of the themes that seemed to carry through was a fear of failure, um, or at least really not wanting to fail. 
Um, is that something on the mental side that you feel has limited your climbing? Yeah, um, I think it has limited me in many ways in the past. That's why I, that's why probably I did so many uh, quick repeats of rather hard routes because lots of them were just not at my limit. You know, lots of them, I tried them once. I knew I could do them fast. Obviously, then I stuck with it. I did them quickly. But I mean, the reason for that was also that I just wouldn't accept challenges where I was not sure whether I could be able to do them or not. And that's something that evolved in the last few years, especially in the last, you know, three, four years, when I accepted that if you want to reach your limit, and I think that goes for every climber, obviously for high-end climbers and professional climbers too, if you want to reach your limit, you need to accept and you need to be willing to put lots of effort into something that might have zero outcome in the end because you can't get the root or the boulder. Well, yeah, for sure. I think, you know, for myself and my friends included, I think um, sometimes there's an inclination to just want to hop on things that we know we can send quickly and maybe not push ourselves uh, and accept the zero outcome, as you say. So, so what was it like for you prior to this evolution, as you said, maybe a few years ago? Previously to that, I would always see that pretty much as a waste of time, I guess, because I mean, if you invest a year into trying to do this one route and you don't do anything, you might see this one year as a waste of time, which obviously it isn't. But if you're young and you have lots of expectations, uh, you know, or you feel like you have lots of expectations from other people, from yourself, that's the way you think you can to overcome that, I mean, it took time and it's a process. It's not that, you know, you just say, okay, tomorrow I'll come overcome my fear of failure. I think it's, um, it's a process and I'm still working on it, but I've taken the first few steps and I have challenged myself with routes that, you know, on some days I knew I was going to do it. And then three days later it felt shit and suddenly it was not so true anymore if I'll ever do it. And yeah, um, I, I. I started to realize that climbing is probably 99% of the time failing only to succeed, you know, this one time when you get up the route and, you know, sometimes it's 100% failing and you'll never climb the route, but that's also fine. At least you tried. Yeah, that's a pretty big evolution for you. It seems like um, certainly when I look back at, at older videos, when you were popping off of, you know, a crux move over and over again, you were really really hard on yourself. And I, and I don't think anybody else was being hard on you. I just think that you wanted it so bad and you were so driven that when it wasn't working out, um, you could just see, you could see like all of the emotion coming up. And, you know, what for you is the point where that's good, you know, where, where there's a healthy amount of being hard on yourself versus an unhealthy amount? For sure. I need, to, I think you need to find the right balance between being hard enough on yourself, but not being so hard that you limit yourself. I mean, if you're so hard on yourself that every time you don't succeed, you beat yourself up so much that it creates, you know, negative memories, then at some point you won't end up challenging yourself anymore because you're just afraid of failing and afraid of feeling like a loser. So obviously if you only enter games that you know you'll win, you're not going to develop as an athlete or a human. So I think there's always a fine line, but... I tend, in general, I would say athletes tend to be hard on themselves just because they want to improve and they want to become better in what they're doing. For sure. And, and while we all probably feel some level of that fear of failure or just that pressure to send, it's kind of on a different level for yourself and other elite climbers 
you know, when you show up at the crag, I imagine all eyes are on you. And um, that pressure just may be a little bit more acute, a little bit more apparent. Plus, it's your career. You've got sponsors. You know, there may be expectations on social media. Who knows? So so how do you work through that? Interestingly, I think there are lots of different ways to work through that pressure. But what seems to work quite well for me is that I tell myself it really doesn't matter at all. Interestingly, I, I try, I use, always tend to put too much pressure on myself. So trying to minimize the pressure, I'm literally telling myself it really doesn't matter. You know, if you climb it today, it doesn't matter. You know, the world's not going to change. You're not going to change. You're still the same person. The world's still going to spin tomorrow. Yeah. 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 That, that brings a nice, uh, a nice level of perspective there. And it's nice to know that pros like yourself not only wrestle with these types of pressures and fears, but also implement these these tools to try to work through them. Interestingly, also Chris has Chris Sharma has a very good attitude to that. He um, he very often manages to see you know the path towards climbing something, you know, the process as the main goal and not the end goal. So yeah, that's uh, always good to learn from it. Yeah, I think if the world just channeled a little bit more Chris Sharma, we'd we'd all be in a little bit of a better place as climbers and humans. So it's good advice. And thank you, Alex, for, for opening up about that. Um, it's it's really interesting and comforting in a way to see that one of the greatest rock climbers in the world um, deals with things that the rest of us do. So thank you. What, one last thing on the mental aspect of climbing before we shift gears here is that I'm curious to know if you have an established practice that you like, a mindfulness practice or something like that. I mean, one of my daily practices is yoga. I really feel like it does help. It helps to calm me down. You know, I try to be in the moment. I try to focus on my breathing. I think breathing is very important, whether you exercise or whether you rest. It does help the body to you know, perform better, to recover better. So that's what I'm putting my focus on. And I mean, that's my my mindfulness practice. I mean, obviously, that would sound a lot cooler to say, oh, I'm getting up at o'clock in the morning and meditating two hours and I do two hours of yoga. Well, that's not the case. <laughs> I think you can incorporate mindfulness practices into a lot of daily habits that you're doing, but uh, it doesn't require sitting down to meditate for an hour. I think just keeping that in mind is already uh, a good tip and useful for lots of people. Oh, absolutely. Being being fully present in the moment is a meditation. And and rock climbing, I mean, that's what's so great about rock climbing is, you know, typically if you're holding on to dime edges for dear life, you're really not able to think about the bills that you have to pay. You know, you are fully present in the moment. So climbing itself is a meditation, uh, which is great. So thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I, sorry to take us down one little extra tangent here on the mental side, but you mentioned breathing for a second there. And when we spoke a few weeks ago, you had told me that you were reading a book on breathing. And so I'm curious what that's about. I mean, what are the big takeaways there? The takeaway is that breathing is sort of a lost superpower of humans that we do every day, 25,000 times a day. And we just take it as granted. We think like our breathing is breathing. It doesn't matter as long as the air goes in and out. Um, there's no difference. But actually through breathing, you can achieve incredible things. You can perform better as an athlete. You can heat yourself up when you're cold. You can you recover better between burns on uh, on the route. I think breathing is the... Uh, the secret superpower that humans have and most of them, almost nobody knows how to use. So 
um, the right breathing techniques, I think can be a total game changer for athletes, for normal people too. Implementing breathing techniques in your training, in your daily life, I think can be uh, very helpful. Yeah, and so for listeners, the book is called Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. It's by James Nestor. And I heard an interview with him not too long ago, and he was talking about how important it is when, especially for athletes, to breathe through your nose. And we we really have this tendency to want to gulp down as much air as we can through our mouths, but that actually nose breathing is far more efficient. And I found that really fascinating. Yeah, I think that's uh, a takeaway of the first chapter. Shut your mouth and breathe through your nose. <laughs> so hard for me to shut my mouth, though, as an actor and podcast hoster, but I'll, I'll try. I'm just constantly talking. All right, buddy. Now let's zoom out here for, for a little bit here as we wrap up our conversation and focus on things outside of the world of rock climbing. What are you passionate about? What is bringing you purpose beyond the fight with gravity? I feel like in the last maybe five years or so, I got much more passionate about environmentalism. When I was in my teens, I didn't really think about that at all. I was flying across the globe to go rock climbing. I was eating whatever I wanted. And I think probably through Patagonia, that's something I I learned to think more about. And I actually got really passionate about it. And I realized that as an, an athlete, I have a huge platform that I could use to inspire people to change in the ways I think are either necessary or, you know, good for themselves and good for the planet. And, and how did this come about? Was there something that really lit this fire inside of you? I wouldn't say it was one event or one thing that sparked change or flipped the switch. Um, I think uh, for me, it just took time. I mean, over the past five years, um, I watched documentaries, read books, and obviously I think just the, the issue of climate change is much more in the media than it has been. So through all that, through the world, more people putting a focus on climate change, environmentalism, I realized, well, that's something I should also put a focus on and realize that I'm passionate about it and it's important. And it gave me a good purpose besides climbing because climbing really isn't anything that's going to make the world a better place, if you want to put it that way. I mean, obviously in some ways it will, of course, because people are passionate about people through climbing, learn to respect nature and then they learn to protect the nature also. But when it comes down to it, climbing will always just be climbing. So I felt like I could use climbing as um, a medium to inspire change. And yeah, that's what I've been trying to incorporate into my, uh, into my life. Well, and you've put out a lot of really good content on Instagram, some, some very thoughtful, very well-researched and, and written posts on a variety of environmental issues. And, and one of them that really resonated with me was food. And you talk a lot about food waste. I've realized that most of the stuff that gets thrown away by supermarkets are not things that are actually bad. It's because the packaging changed because they had a special offer and the special offer ran out and they didn't want to offer the same product to the price that it was before. So everything that is with old packaging will not be sold anymore. Oh yeah, it's totally wild. You've, you've posted about how you found perfectly good food in the dumpster outside of grocery stores and enjoyed it. And you recommended these box companies that, you know, basically rescue food from from stores. And it, I got one of those subscriptions, by the way, here in the States, it's called Misfits. And it's it's essentially, you know, food that can't be sold, whether it's a packaging change, like you've said, or maybe it's like what are really 
deemed as ugly fruits and vegetables, but my family loves it. We open it up and we get our ugly carrots and our ugly apples and we enjoy the heck out of them. That's awesome. And speaking of carrots, this is your thing. I, I want to dive into carrots for power now. So first of all, why carrots? I think the backstory of why carrots was because I felt like, um, what is the healthy snack you can take to the crack? They are solid and you can throw them in your backpack. They're not going to smash. They, um, you can eat them raw. You can eat them with hummus, uh, stuff like that. You can eat them with dips. So carrots seemed like a good vegetable to take to the crag as a snack. And then at some point, I just started creating this hashtag carrots for power. And, you know, years later, people thought there was actually something behind it, but there really isn't anything behind it. It was just a gag that started and uh, people picked up. And now it's like this uh, massive thing. So I started, you know, printing t-shirts with a company from the UK and all the proceeds that I make with the t-shirts, I started donating them to NGOs. Awesome. Incredible. So you're giving away all of the proceeds, which is just so cool. And I love that it started as a joke as well. And now here you are actually making a meaningful impact in the world. Um, it looks like you've worked with a variety of NGOs, some in the climbing space and some not. Could you just highlight a few of them for us? It always is, you know, by almost by accident that I come across something and obviously the two climbing NGOs that I donated money to, it's uh, Dream Higher in South Africa and uh, Climbing for Change in the US from Kai Leitner. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. And I love Climbing for Change. So so it's great. <laughs> two climbers supporting one another. Um, what else? What other organizations are you looking to support in the future here with Carrots for Power? I think one of the next NGOs that I would like to donate money to is um, the Ocean Cleanup. Well, we came across with a couple of friends of mine and they're really doing cool stuff. They're trying to clean up the ocean, trying to extract all the plastic that uh, we've been putting in the oceans for years now. So um, that seems like uh, a cool NGO. They're doing something really cool and maybe that will be the next uh, NGO I'll donate money to. Well, I picked up a t-shirt for myself and for my son, classic yellow carrots for power. I feel like we both send probably one or two letter grades harder when we're wearing that. So um, happy to know that we're supporting great organizations and um, it's just a fun thing. And, and I see that you launched a new store recently. You've got not just shirts, but tanks and sweatshirts, um, all sorts of good stuff in there. Is it all yellow? Is that the rule for carrots for power? Strict yellow, only yellow. <laughs> no, no, actually they'll be available in loads of colors like yellow, black, white, green, red, gray, purple, like there'll be loads of different color options. And also there'll also be different logo sizes. So if somebody doesn't want to work around with a bright yellow shirt and a huge logo on the chest, it's actually like a pocket size logo that makes it a bit more discreet and you can actually wear that to work too. You, you took something that was a little bit of a joke, a little bit of a lark and turned it into a driver for change. And that's awesome. I think it's not only me being passionate about it. I mean, the reason for why Carrots for Power is so successful, quote unquote, and why so many people buy t-shirts and donate money is because they think it's cool. So actually, I wanted to thank everybody for supporting that and for being part. And, you know, I get daily pictures of Carrots where people suggest the next Carrot of the day. So it's, uh, it's cool to be passionate to people about it. We've just really created such a cool community around climbing and culture and also doing some good stuff in the world. So thanks for doing that. And thank you for taking the time today, Alex. It's just been such a pleasure to hear about your struggles, your breakthroughs, and get psyched on all that you have to come. So let's keep in touch, okay? Well, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
man, I really enjoyed that. I gotta say, this interview, it surprised me. And and I just cannot thank Alex enough for being so honest and accessible and also vulnerable in sharing his struggles and his breakthroughs with us. Would love to hear your all's thoughts as well. Hit us up on Instagram at Alexander Magos, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, my personal takeaways from the chat is that, you know, I think it's possible to climb really hard without being really hard on your body or your mind. I mean, Alex is one of the hardest climbers in the world, and for him to prioritize rest and also a playful attitude towards the sport, I think we can all tap into that. And I'm also really psyched on Carrots for Power. I love the shirt that I got. Um, all the new stuff they have up on the store is, is really cool there. And what started as a joke is actually making an impact around the world. And what could be cooler than that? Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. I'm telling you guys, this is the best stuff out there. Give Endurex and Crush a try if you want to send your pumpy project like I managed to do recently. And use code STRUGGLE15 to get 15% off your full price nutrition order. Also, the psych is so high for Friction Labs. You guys, it's what top athletes use and trust for dependable, long-lasting grip. Alex's favorite chalk is their super chunky Bam Bam. My personal favorite's Gorilla Grip. But look, they got a flavor for everyone, so pop over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Now, before I go, how about some swag and an opportunity to support the climbers that make this show possible? If you're in a position to do so, pop by patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. When you're there, you can sign up for the only tier that we've got, Send Train. And who wouldn't want to be on the Send Train? For seven bucks a month, you can join the community, which is awesome. Thank you so much. And you'll also score yourself a limited edition travel mug slash can koozie, which is only available to guests of the show and the patrons who support it. I'm not sure I'm painting a clear picture here. What is a travel mug slash can koozie? Well, it's an aluminum double walled vacuum sealed awesome travel mug that'll keep your tea hot on the way to the crag. And then you can pop a beer or other canned beverage into it. It fits like a glove. And now it's an aluminum double walled vacuum sealed can koozie. Come on now, what could be cooler than that? Pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and check it all out. Thank you so much. Lastly, if you want to score yourself a free sticker, it's easy. Just rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and then snap a little picture of that, post it on Instagram and tag at the struggle climbing show so that we can find you and boom, we'll send you a sticker. Slap it on your Nalgene, your stick clip, your forehead or wherever you put stickers so that everyone knows that you love the struggle and the struggle loves you. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See you next week.